Welcome to the West Peak Sessions. A quick shout out to my listeners. Glad you're enjoying the podcast. Remember, we do have a GoFundMe page to help cover some of the costs of putting the podcast together. All donations appreciated, no matter how small. Go to GoFundMe.com and search for the West Peak Sessions. Thanks, and let's get started. My guest today is a legendary Aussie who was known for his power surfing and domination of the North Shore in the mid to late 70s. He's the 1973 world champion and was also instrumental in establishing the world professional surfing circuit that we know and love today, Mr. Ian Cairns. It's magnificent as usual. That is good to hear, my friend. Me too. I want to go back to the very start, mate. So you've mentioned, you know, you and I have something in common. Sadly, it's not um, power surfing in big waves on the North Shore. You've got that mantle to yourself. But uh, we were both born in Victoria, and we both fell in love with surfing when we moved when our families moved to WA. How old were you, mate, when you came out to WA? And tell us a bit about your experience growing up over here and how you uh, fell in love with the ocean and with surfing. Yeah, look, um, I was bo- uh, born into a, a pretty much a blue-collar family in, in Melbourne. Um, you know, my grandfather worked on the wharves. Uh, my great-great-grandfather uh, emigrated Scotch-Irish from Ireland in about 1854, landed in Geelong. Wow. And um, so uh, they, they um, moved out and started farming in Yakandanda. Yeah, mate, and then out there... In, my great aunt, they lived in Warrnambool. Yep. So, uh, Western Victorian stock, right? Yeah, me and, too. My uh, dad, mum, so and dad my, are from my, Footscray. Yeah, yeah. Well, my my, I was born in Kew. Right. Right. So smack in the middle of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and when I was uh, six, my dad, mum, and dad moved to Sydney, and my dad worked there, and my mum worked there in Sydney. And uh, my dad was an engineer, and uh, then when I was 13, he got a job in WA working for Hammersley Iron, working at Port Hedland uh, on helping to design the railway tracks for the port there, you know, to export this iron ore, this commodity, which fundamentally, it was the foundation of wealth. I mean, the when, you, when you're looking at the... The, the cattle and the sheep stations and, you know, we, we moved to Cottesloe. We drove all the way across Western, um, across from Sydney, uh, me and my brother and sister in the back seat and mum and dad in the front seat of a Falcon sedan, <laughs> four-door sedan, surfboards on the roof, drive, driving across the Nullarbor, you know, through uh, Broken Hill out to South Australia and then, then across – the Nullarbor, which was uh, 1,200 miles of dirt road, and people imagine dirt road. Yeah. You know, like there's been a grader gone through there recently. Yeah. No, we're talking a two-lane track. Yeah. With massive potholes and 1,200 miles, like a gas or a petrol station every 100 miles. Yeah. And you had to stop and tell them that the Cairns family was coming through. Right. Wow. And, we, and you know, so they would check with the next – petrol station and you would check in and I remember that we stopped at the Ivy tanks which was like freshwater tanks 
and you would fill up the Hessian bag the, for fresh water on the front of the car, and then off we went and we drove through, you know, of course, Widgimutha and yeah. you know, the whole thing back into Perth. And we let, my, my dad had rent, we just said, we lived in Avalon. And I just started, I got my first surfboard in Christmas of 65. And in January of 1966, we're driving across the Nullarbor to go, where the fuck is Western Australia? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And it was sort of like on the other side of the world. And we rock up and Perth is awesome. Yeah. It was just a little country town. Yeah. And we lived at uh, five at Pierce Street in, in Cottesloe, five houses up from the isolated. Wow. Over the road from the golf course. And I could I could have just been become, you know, Gary Player or something as a golfer. Yeah. But I went surfing and you know, five houses down with my nine foot seven board on my head because I couldn't <laughs> get my arm around it. And you know, down there practicing and got introduced to the uh, our surfing indigenous culture. Mm. At each of these surf spots, and became friends with the guys in the Southern Surf Rider Board Club. Yep. And we'd go off surfing and to contests, and you know, go from, you know, from uh, isolated and seconds. Like I was from isolated. We didn't go up to seconds much or <laughs> or the cove. But I got my first photograph uh, at uh, Main Beach Cottesloe. Wow. With the pylon in the background. Oh, awesome. And I was wearing a Healthways wetsuit vest with the tail flapping. It was a dive dive vest. Before <laughs> that, when I, you know, the first winter there, we'd wear, we'd wear footy jumpers. Yeah. To stay warm. Wow. And so it was just in those amazing times when, you know, surfing was just happening. Mm. And, you know, the, the guys from Cottesloe Board Riders tried to poach me. <laughs> but, you know, they were the guys that, that lived over there in Peppermint Grove, right? Right. And my guys worked at the Ampol refinery and all sorts of shit, like yep. and were carpenters and like it was just the full blue collar crew at uh, Southern Surfriders, and it was um, it was just pretty interesting, and they created a really interesting family. Awesome, unreal, and and uh, and you went to Swanbourne High School. So what was it like back then? Were there many surfers at your school? Well, yeah, George Simpson was there. Uh, I went to Swanbourne High. Uh, I'd started my first year at uh, at Narrabeen High School first in uh, in Sydney. My brother was a prefect. Yep. Uh, I was getting a cane. <laughs> uh, so second year I went to Swanbourne High, and George Simpson was there, and a few other surfers, um, uh, Loeb, uh, Ricky Loeb, and um, you know. I was, always was a bit of an outcast at school. I mean, I was literally segregated from the class for being. Um, I, I, I look at it as kind of um, creative. Yep. And uh, I, I suppose here they use a word called rambunctious. Yeah, yeah. Which is a way of saying you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> but you're not. You just have a different way of thinking than the uh, the structured curriculum, right? You know what? It's it, I've been cursed with the Y gene, mm. where you you need to question something so you can understand it before yeah. you 
do something. And that is the opposite of uh, adherence to the philosophy in school. It is, yeah, which says a lot about what's wrong with that philosophy, not what's wrong with the student. No, no, no. And and so what you – so actually I, I went for a Commonwealth scholarship uh, – you know, at, at the end of the third year, and I didn't get the full-blown Commonwealth scholarship. I got a Commonwealth technical scholarship. Right. So I shifted schools from Swanbourne to Mount Lawley Tech. Right. And, you know, basically went there and and I did, the, you know, math, chemistry, physics, all of that sort of stuff. But I also did photography, glass blowing. Well, because it was a laboratory technician course. Right. So I thought that my pathway was there. But what I liked about it was it was a little bit more grown up and mature. Mm. I wasn't at high school. I was at college. Right. And yeah. when I was, you know, 15. Yeah. And and so the idea, so photography, I mean, back in those days, you would shoot film and develop black and white prints in the in the lab. Mm. And, you know, at before you went to the chemistry class, you would actually build the test tubes and glass flowing and things like that. Mm. So it was it was sort of – but I had to get on the bus from Cottesloe and ride the bus out to Mount Lawley, which in those days, that seemed like an astronomical distance. Yeah. <laughs> but today – our, our vision of what cities are, yeah. they're so much more condense, condense yeah. and it's faster to get places. That's right. Absolutely. And at the same time, so you're surfing in surfing competitions, but there's no kind of uh, notion of a professional surfing career anywhere on the horizon, right? But you started winning state championships when you were, what, about 13? No, no. I, I arrived when I was 13. Yep. Uh, that was 1966. Yep. 1966. I, I competed, um, I pretty much had been surfing with my own board since Christmas the year, be, you know, the year before. Yeah. But I, I started to, um, I'm surfing with, and I, and I got mentored by uh, Arthur Sherburn, Artie Sherburn, and in 1967, Artie Sherburn and I won the Open and the Junior State title at isolated right in 1967 i competed at yelling up in my first state titles and uh so i was you know what 14 Mm. and i lost and i lost in a heat that was four no it was three people in two heats so there were six people in the water but there were two heats Mm. and even though um I got one of the highest scores of the heat. In my half of the heat, I still lost. Mm. And I just went, well, this is a funky system. Mm. Like I was one of the best guys out in the, in the water at that time, yet I still got eliminated. Yeah. And you can, you can see where that ended up. Yes, yeah, and I want to take you there. So, you know, obviously at this time there are world champions, right? We've got... You know, uh, Midget Farrelly was crowned a world champion back in 62, but back then a title was basically decided in a single event, uh, which was sort of open to almost anyone, and there was nobody making a, a living out of surfing. Uh, and But when you were winning state titles as a teenager, were you dreaming that a career in surfing might be possible, or did it just seem... No. Look, mate, I, 
I went to a WASRA, Western Australian Surf Riders Association, like the precursor to Surfing WA. Yep. I went to a meeting in, um, it must have been 1967, and they gave out like a little ha- you know, printed handout that, that had state champions. I saw Murray Smith on that. Yep. And I thought, wow, I would like to be state champion. Yeah. And it was, these things don't, you, you just don't get, get, get from, Rocking up and Cottesline surfing isolated to thinking you're going to be world champion. Yeah, yeah. These these things are all incremental, and they go plateau to plateau to plateau. Yep. And uh, so I went, wow, that's cool. And then lo and behold, in in '67, me and Artie win the uh, the state spring championships at isolated. In '68. I win the state junior championship and I'm on the WA team to go to the Australian championship, which was in Sydney. And uh, I'm, I'm there and uh, I didn't do well. I came, you know, 20th or whatever it was. Right. But I'm on the beach at, for the grand final of the Australian championships at Long Reef with Keith Paul wins the event. You've got Nat Young, you've got Midget Farrelly, you've got Robert Keneally, you've got um, Frank Ladder, um, Ted Spencer, like the complete and utter icons of the sport. Yeah. I had lost in the juniors, and I'm watching Wayne Lynch just kill this place. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, like, when you get a chance to actually – be there like a fly on the wall and, and watch mm. these, you know, uh, literally the best surfers in the world, you know, pretty inspirational. You yeah. go, well, yeah, maybe I'd like to, you know, could I win an Australian championship? Yeah. I mean, so we come back in the 1969, the uh, Australian championships was at Western Australia. Yep. And uh, they've, the Australian Championships was three rounds, I think. They had that, they had one round in, in Scarborough Beach. Uh, yep. They had a couple of rounds at Margaret River. I completely, in 1969, I bombed again right. at Scarborough. But in the two rounds at Margaret River, which happened to just be spectacularly perfect, May, Margaret River, big high-pressure system, big swirls, 10 feet, offshore winds, perfect sunny weather, absolutely amazing mm. i do really really well and i end up fourth place right in the australian championship wow and and that's batty trelaw and of course it's but you know i'm i'm now hanging with nat and midget yeah. and um i actually was surfing for midget at that that time right midget came across and did a demo at yelling up and i became friendly with him and i actually learned to shape Wow. At Midget's factory in in um, 1969. Awesome. So you're well and truly diving headlong into the shortboard revolution now at this stage? Well, what happened was my first board was a um, uh, a Dale that yep. I got, got Christmas. My brother and sister and my aunt chipped in and I got uh, – the only reason I got my board was because my dad went to Western Australia. Yep. Like – he would not have allowed me out of surfboard because surfers, surfies. Well, bums. Bums. And yeah. Fuckwits. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and so I lived at Avalon, and my brother was, you know, the prefect and of Narrabeen High School. Um, he was in the Surf Life Saving Club at Avalon, um, and I was just a little brother. So I would borrow boards out of the Surf Life Saving Club right. and start surfing at South Avalon, and I would make boards. His friends kneeboarded on, like, plywood pipo boards. <laughs> so I surfed pipo boards at Little Avalon. <laughs> Uh, before I ever had a surfboard. Right, wow. And then one day I borrowed a board, uh, and South Avalon has this sort of right-hander near the rocks. Yep. And up on the other end of the beach, North Avalon, I see all these people up there. So I paddled up there, and I, I go, whoa, these are like, this is where the surfers are. This is not the surf club. Mm. And these guys are cool. Yeah. And I, I remember I paddled up there, I paddled for a wave, and it was a left-hander, but I couldn't go left because I'd never been left. I went right <laughs> on a left-hander. <laughs> and I just went, hang on. There's a whole new group of people that are different, yeah. and there's different waves to learn. And it, and it just sort of that transition from one end of the beach to the other right. was like the twilight zone. You know what I'm saying? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and that was it, – it's just – you know, these are the things that happen to you uh, certainly without thought and 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 planning. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 these are the accidental things that happen, and one of those was getting in the car, the, old, the Falcon, and in the back seat with my brother and sister. And of course, I was the younger brother, yeah. so I was in the middle. Yeah. And driving to Cottesloe, I'm finding a surf spot, you know, five houses down the road. Yeah. Um, which meant that I became, rather than just another kid growing up in Sydney going surfing, Yep. I became a kid in Western Australia. Yeah. And then I went down south with my mates at Sun Surf Rider and I, I discovered Yelling Up and North Point and Margaret River. Yep. And I, I happened to be good. Yeah, you started to get into some power and some bigger stuff. And yeah, my nickname when I was when I was thirteen was Skeeter. Oh yeah, I was six foot two and one hundred and fifty five pound, <laughs> super skinny. <laughs> but height gives you leverage yeah. for big weight. Yep. And so I I just went out there and like oh yeah this is awesome you know bring it on and then you know yelling up was incredible I'd surf with midget out there yep and then we went to Margaret River and it's just sort of like. Wow, this is awesome! Yeah. So you can, you can see when I watch WSL at Margaret River, yeah, I'm reliving. Uh, I mean, how many years is that? It's like fifty-five years of yeah. life experience. Yep. In Margaret River, and I know what that experience can do for someone. Yeah. Yep. And so the the concept of you know going and surfing those waves and uh, being like a, a, when I, in 68, I won the most emerging surf, junior surfer and I won the Duke Kahanamoku trophy. Right. And I, I go, all right, Duke Kahanamoku, Hawaiian surfing swimmer. But, but I spoke to Snowy McAllister who was actually on the beach of freshwater when Duke rode those waves. Right. With Isabel Latham. I had to honor that legacy. Mm. A Hawaiian brought surfing to Australia. Yeah. And so I got to 
I, I surfed in you know a couple of Australian 1970. The Australian titles was at Coolangatta. Yep. And again, I came fourth. Um, I mean, PT Rabbit, um, Mark Warren, Michael Peterson were in that event. I came fourth. Wow. Uh, but I got a selector for the Australian team at Bell's Beach. Yeah. And 1970, I'm 18. I'm in, a junior in the Australian team. Yep. I, I get in a car with Kiwi White has just passed out. Uh, Dana Nicely, a, a, you know, a surfer from Kauai, Corky Carroll, hmm. and Drew Harrison. And because those, Kiwi hung out at Midget's shop and I was fixing dings or something at Midget's shop yeah. in, in 1970. Yeah. And um, we drove down to uh, Bell's Beach in this old Dodge. The windscreen, the windscreen wipers didn't work. Someone had to m- manipulate them manually. <laughs> um, I'm listening to Drew Harrison you know, tell me that you know, how good Americans are and how fucked up Australian surfers are. <laughs> Corky Carroll smoking dope. Uh, it's just sort of like total mind-bending experience. Yeah. And, what you know, so they, they're going on to wherever they're going to go, and I'm saying I'm going to Bell's Beach. So they dropped me off at Bell's Beach in the middle of this hurricane, right, the torrential downpour. And because I think ahead, I bought a sleeping bag and a, and a plastic sheet, so yeah. I slept in the toilets at Bell's Beach. <laughs> And stayed dry because of my plastic sheet. <laughs> so I, I just get dropped off because this is where I'm meant to be. And, you know, so ultimately I had to go to Lawn to hook up with the Australian team. And, uh, but that's how surfing was. Yeah. Awesome. You just hooked up with people, you hitched a ride, you yep. got dumped, you looked after yourself, you had a can of uh, baked beans, um, you know, you drank some water out of the the downpipe from the, the rain falling. I mean, <laughs> we didn't have private jets and helicopters yeah. taking us to Tabarua. Yeah, and big sponsorship dollars like they have today. And so no, the 68... Stuff. We had the authenticity of the surf experience and the travel and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think, you know, skipping aside a little bit, do you think that um, pro surfers these days miss out on a little bit by having it all kind of a little bit laid out on a plate and a little bit too easy for them? Of course they do. Yeah. Everyone in the high-level surfing community or the Western community yep. misses out on, on the opportunity for adventure in life. Yeah. And adventure in life is magnificent. Yeah. Um, like the exploration, like I slept in the cave at, in Bali in 1970. Yeah. You know, with, with Pat, my wife at that time. You know, and there was nothing there at Uluwatu. Yeah. Nothing. And you could hear the people as you were walking down trying to find out where this place was. <laughs> it was just like, hello, hello. All <laughs> these people calling out to you, just nice, friendly people, Balinese. Yeah. And just, oh, there's this wave. <laughs> and when I, when I look at it now, I just think that, those experiences are somewhat ruined mm. for, uh, you know, whether it's barley. Yep. But then, I, then I take on my optimistic viewpoint. Yep. And I just go, there's other places to find. I agree. 
who has the gumption to pick up yeah. and go and discover another way? Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. That, that right there is the magic of the surf experience. Yeah. And, you know, because we, we are a nomadic tribe. Yeah, that's right. I love that, mate. There's still plenty of islands and, you know, crevices and things out there that we haven't seen. And you're right. It's it's going to be a change of, of mindset, though, isn't it? Because I think traveling surfers have become a little bit spoiled. It's a little bit too easy for, for all of us, you know. I mean, I, yeah. I, I went on a surf trip to the Maldives and I loved every minute of it, but none of it was hard. And you probably would really struggle to put any of that in the into the category of, of adventure that you, you, you know, the word you used. So interesting stuff, interesting thought. So look, let's stay. Go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the. I mean, I just commented on a on a. I think it's Scott Bauer. It's a photographer from WA. Yep. He had a beautiful lineup shot of, um, Red Bluff. Yep. Beautiful left peeling down the beach, and the mm. second shot was his campground with a bunch of four wheel drives camping there. Yeah. I went to Red Bluff in 1977 hmm. uh, with with Pat, and there was one other person there. Yeah, there was a guy, there was a fisherman, and he caught a blue groper that filled his uh, cooler. He packed up and left. <laughs> so Pat and I are there. She's up on the rocks getting a, getting a tan. I jump off the rocks and I paddle out, and there's like 150 sharks out in the lineup. Yeah. And for three days in a row, I get chased out of the water by sharks. <laughs> and I'm there completely by myself. Yeah. And my my takeaway prior to that, I'd, I'd been up to the northwest with my dad. Um, we went up to Whitnam Gorge and swung in billabongs, and we went out to Cossack, mm. which was an old port town. And we, I looked in the water, and it was like an aquarium. Yeah. Just so much sea life. And I just thought, like, how wonderful the northwest of Western Australia is yeah. in terms of the variety of sea life and just the volume and the activity of sea life in the ocean yeah. and how it interconnects with, with now with surfers yep. and how it interconnects with that. So these these sort of experiences of going out into the wilderness and riding waves are priceless. Yeah, yep. You know, it, it, and it's exactly – I was brought up on all of these adventure books. You know, my, I, I read, so I've read all of these things. So, mm. you know, whether it's, you know, Hemingway or, you know, I've got a book on a guy that went out into the jungles and then shot um, man-eating tigers. Yeah. And, you know, guys that went up to look, you know, find the headhunters in New Guinea. Yep. These are the book. These are the books that I got as a prize – at Sunday school in the Presbyterian Church in Avalon when I was nine. And those are the books that I read those stories and I looked at those pictures and I just dreamt of this life where you could go off and do that. Awesome. And you found your own way to do that. And the trip down to Torquay was part of that adventure. That's fantastic. So, look, I'll bring us back onto the the, the track of, of following your career. So the 68 world champ was Fred Hemmings. Uh, he retired from surfing to become an event promoter and the Smirnoff World Pro-Am at Sunset Beach was born and that became, you know, the event that decided world champions from 1970 to 75. So you mentioned yep. 1970, you found yourself on the Australian team. In 70, the Australian team was at Bells Beach. Right, okay. In 1972, yep. the 
Australian team went to Ocean Beach in San Diego. Right. And, and by then I'm 20. Yep. And, you know, so we, we fly over there. I, I mean, it, it's PT and Rabbit and Simon Anderson, Mark Richards, yep. um, Turek Fitzgerald, myself, um, Grant Oliver, Mark Warren. I mean, it's the pantheon of Australian surfing. Yeah. We're at Ocean Beach and the waves were complete dog shit, you know, because it was, uh, I believe it was in September and that there was predominant south swells and, and that area of Ocean Beach and Sunset Cliffs mm. works later in the year on a west swell. Yep. Uh, in fact, two weeks ago, my son is uh, doing a, a welding apprenticeship in San Diego, and we met up and we went surfing at Ocean Beach. Right. Two weeks ago. And it almost hasn't changed. And I'm there, and right there was where I was parked in 1972, where this contest happened. It's where I met Michael Ho. And I'm just going, like I told Malachi, I said, this is, this right there is where we parked. Wow. 50 years ago. Wow. Awesome. And it was just sort of, but that was my introduction to America. Mm. And Kiwi White had travelled ex- extensively in America, and and he told me stories of you know things. So I, I actually stayed at Debbie Beecham's house, hmm. and I surfed Windensea, mm. which was really really good. Debbie Beecham won a world title, a great surfer. Yeah, and and. Here was a house that had multiple bathrooms. Hmm. My house in Cottesloe had a single bathroom <laughs> and it was right at the point where there was an outhouse <laughs> and you had the honeypot come by in the laneway to pick up the shit can. Yeah, wow. Right? So that's in, in Cottesloe yeah. in, in 66, that was reality. Yeah. In right. 1972... In San Diego, multiple bathrooms and a powder room, hmm. and I was just going, these people are so wealthy. Yeah. It's like mind-boggling. Yeah. And so these, these sort of um, mind-blowing cultural you know, shifts and, yeah. and the recognition of the difference between our, you know, how we grew up in Australia and how things are there, mm. um, you know, I, I – I went out up to – I was in <laughs> Encinitas yesterday near Lucadia, and those places were total hippie places, wow. 1972. Yeah. It was sort of like the summer of love in San Francisco, you know? Yeah, a couple of years and later, was, <laughs> still going. When I go to these places, I'm just I'm just flashing back. Like I, I was overlooking Swamis yesterday. Yeah. And I was, you know, pretty good southwest world's best in a west world, but, you know, kind of guys out – and, you know, so this interconnection between Australia and America, for me, mm. has been really influential. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And then so when did you first come over to Hawaii? Was it 72, 73? Yeah, look, I, what, what happened was I flew from Perth to Sydney. I landed in Honolulu. And somehow I got a connection with um, to stay with Randy Rarick. Wow. He, he had a surfboard shop and I stayed – in his shop, there was a bunk bed in his surfboard factory that I stayed there for a day or two. Hmm. My first ever surf was at um, Kaiser's at Waikiki. Yep. 
I mean, have you seen how unbelievable Waikiki is? Yes, I have. I've surfed there and loved every second of it. It, it, it is sort of like the genesis of modern surfing. Yes. It's Duke Hanamoku. It's the Outrigger Canoe Club. Yeah. It's Kaisers. It's this crystal clear water. Yeah. It's Waikiki, for God's sake, Diamond yeah. Head. Yeah. And so I stayed there. I surfed there a couple of times, and then I got on a plane and flew to San Diego, and that's when I stayed with Debbie. And I surfed the the contest and, and did very poorly and flew to Hawaii um, late September of 1972 hmm. and stayed um, Uupuolo, which is a street at Backyards right near V-Land. Hmm. My first surf was at V-Land. It was small, you know, probably Westwell. Yep. Next, I, I went out at sunset and I'm looking out to sea, and I look to my left, and oh my god, here's like a 15 foot set coming out of the west, out of the channel, yeah. at Sunset Beach, and I'm just going, oh my god, this is like being caught inside of the bubble at Margaret River, yeah, time two, yeah, <laughs> and, I, and that was my introduction to the North Shore, and I just went, oh my god. Mm. So again, when I talk about plateaus, right? Yeah. So I went from Cottesloe, I go to the. Australian team, I mean, the state team to the Australian championships, state championships is in WA, I make the Australian team, I go uh, to to San Diego as the Australian team, and then Mm. I go to Hawaii, Mm. and so the evolution of, uh, and the expansion of my surfing life and my surfing capability Mm. happened over from say sixty eight to seventy two, yeah, and now I'm out at Sunset Beach, yeah, and I just went, oh, I'm on a new plateau. And yeah, this is like now we got the Everest to climb, right? And you certainly and climbed it. You you embraced it. Uh, Sunset became, you know, it's it's synonymous with your name in many respects. In seventy three, you beat the legendary Jeff Hackman out there, and you won the Smirnoff Pro. Added your name to the the list of world surfing champions. The, only the eleventh man ever to do so. The thing was that Sunset was the place, but in nineteen seventy two, you couldn't get into any of those contests that Fred Hemmings had. Mm. There were thirty six men. Right. And I surfed well enough. I came second in the amateur Smirnoff at Sunset Beach, but the real Smirnoff was held at Halle Eva in 1972. Right. And the people in my house that I was staying at was um, Paul Nielsen, Ricky Nielsen, and and Grant Oliver, Dapper Oliver. Hmm. And somehow, because of better results, they, uh, both Dapper and Paul Nielsen, got a start in the Smirnoff. And the day before the Smirnoff in 1972, we were down at Haleiwa, and and clearly I outsurfed them, but I didn't get a start. Paul Nielsen hmm. won the Smirnoff in nineteen seventy two. Grant Oliver was third, so they came back to the house at Uupuola at Sunset Point as world champion and number three. Right, and I didn't get a get I didn't get a start. Hmm. So in nineteen seventy three, when I went back. I'm still don't have a start in the any any of the events, and I'm the third alternate, hmm. uh, second alternate I think for the Smirnoff, which because it was a big north swell, was shifted to Laniakea. Right. And Laniakea 
is this long point break when it's on a north swell. Mm. Just absolutely amazing. Right. And I'm not in the contest, and I got 150 bucks to stay the winter. Hmm. And Hemmings goes, uh, the entry fee's 100 bucks. Oh. And this Peruvian guy, uh, Ivo Hansa, has not shown up. Hmm. You can enter. Wow. So I put my 100 bucks down. <laughs> 100 bucks in 1973. <laughs> so. I've gambled my entire winter on on going out in the heat. Wow! But it's at but it's at Laniakea with this long right hander, and yeah. it's like ten feet. Yeah, incredible. So I, I I paddle out and I get through the first round, and then I get through it, and I'm, suddenly I'm in the final hmm. of the Smirnoff with uh, Jeff Hackman, um, Larry Bertelman. Hmm. Uh, I mean, who's oh who? God, you know, buttons. Yeah. Uh, Hawaiian yeah, legends. Uh, I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah. But what was really weird was they they were high performance surfers and they surfed at the this end section. They were doing really great maneuvers. Mm. And me and Hackman paddled all the way up the back. Right. And so we're riding. You know, we rode a couple of waves, and this ginormous set comes, ten to twelve feet, just absolutely perfect. And I'm just like I'm gobsmacked. I'm like I'm I'm already making money. Yeah. Like, worst case, I can, you know, quadruple my money. Yeah. <laughs> and I just go, Hackman, go. This is unbelievable. Perfect. Yeah. And I paddle over, and the next wave is bigger and better. And I just rode behind him, just doing bigger and better maneuvers, powerful, more from way outside, way past the inside guys. And I went from not in the contest to world champion in one day. Wow. That's amazing. Five Five thousand bucks. Wow! <laughs> you could you could go and buy a Porsche for six thousand. Wow, that is awesome. What a story! That's fantastic. But it was. I always, always believed I was good. Yep. But you need validation. Mm. Yeah. And, and what I learned on that day, I'd spent. All the way from 1968 through to the 1973, just agonizing over how complex surfing competition was. Yeah. And what I realized on that day was you paddle out the back, you get the bomb, you surf it good all the way to the end, and you paddle out and get another one. Yeah. And that right there became the mantra for how I coach people. Yeah. Yeah. And it became your signature move. I mean, you're you're absolutely known for that. The guy that's sitting out the back waiting for the set. That's that's the Kanga trademark. So, mate, yeah. that's a great story. I love that story. And I, and I know that this era here, we're starting to move into the you know the busting down the door. We've got um, Rabbit and Mr. and Sean coming over from South Africa. And all of that was captured so beautifully in, in the film Busting Down the Door, which in a lot of ways was a, a film extension of, of Rabbit's um, autobiography written by the great Tim Baker. Shout out to Tim. Yep. Um, and look, I love that film. I would hope that almost all of my listeners have seen that. If you haven't, hurry up. You're missing out on one of the great surfing documentaries of all time. And, and in that film, you say something that I absolutely love. I'm going to quote you here. You say... I remember lots of times in conditions at Sunset or Waimea where it was just ridiculous and it would be me and Eddie. Of course, you're talking about the great Eddie I Cow. And you go on to say, 
It was sort of like a mutual respect because nobody else had the balls to be there. And I, I think that and maybe MR's we wanted to rip the shit out of it and we wanted to be famous are my two favourite quotes of that movie. Talk to me about that, about your relationship with Eddie Icow and, and that sort of mentality in Big Surf. Well, Eddie was the lifeguard at Sunset Beach. Mm. Sunset Beach was the epicentre of surfing. If you wanted to be accepted as a, a champion surfer or accepted as a, um, a great waterman in Hawaii, you had to do it at sunset. Right. And so I was out there. There, there, there was a, a thing called Australia Day. It was when the wind was howling on shore and sunset was closed out. Yep. And we would be out there. Australians <laughs> would be out there surfing. Yeah. Because it's the one time where we were free from crowds, were free from any conflict, mm. and it was also the, the chance to test yourself in the most extreme circumstances known to man. Mm. And, you know, without leashes, I mean, can you hold under your board when you push under, uh, you know, a 20-foot closeout set at Sunset Beach? Mm. I mean, I've been underwater from the outside to a Vales Reef wow. holding under my board. Yeah. I mean... I've been out there with PT. We went out one day. It was just sort of we look at each other. It was raining. There was no one around, just me and him. And we said, well, let's go for it. And that's when there's 10 or 12-foot waves breaking in the rip mm. uh, because of how strong the rip is, yeah. let alone closing out the channel. Wow. So we're paddling out. We get caught inside. We both lose our boards. My board is on its way to Camelan. PT's is right behind. We're swimming like crazy. And we both get to PT's board, and mine gets caught by Camuland and goes over the falls and washes in. Mm. And so PT's, Jake, mate, he's got his board. He can paddle in. I had to go into Camuland at 20 feet and catch a body surf wave and swim in, and I ended up at Rocky Point with my board. <laughs> wow. But – this is completely invisible to anyone yeah. because it's raining, it's closed out. No, no one in their right mind is out at Sunset Beach on a day like that. <laughs> but why did we become good? Yeah. Because we experienced the most extreme conditions known to man yeah. and uh, went out there and learned how to survive. Fantastic. Wow, mate, that, that's awesome. So basically you're surfing in competitions and winning world titles, um, but there's no real world tour as such. And, you know, there's a bit of a status quo as to the way surfing events are being judged and scored. How long had you and Pete had the concept of a world tour and a new point scoring system rattling around inside your heads? Well, if you think that the IPS started in 76. Yeah. And I think it was in 75 that we were part of a group that formed the APSA, the Australian Professional Surfing Association. Yep. And, of course, you know that Graham Cassidy put together the Coke contest and then the Straight Talk Tire. Yeah. He did well, – Graham was a, a, an incredible organiser for surfing. Um, you know, a passionate surfer but also a, a writer. I think it's Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah. You know, so we had a lot of friends that were involved in the – in the media and um you know with the bronze Aussies, of course we were um often quoted i mean i had a column pt had a column in the newspapers in sydney yep. and 
So we were talking, we did points for the APSA for rankings in 75. In 76, we put together the idea of uh, rankings and, and pitched it to uh, Randy Rarick, who was in South Africa surfing. He was staying at Michael Thompson's house and we're able to get together and talk to him about this. And he went back to Hawaii uh, via Brazil, actually, because he was helping run the Waimea 5000. Right. And uh, he spoke to Fred Hemmings, who was running the, the events there. And, and Fred just went, oh, this is a great idea. We'll, we'll create this and we'll retroactively award points for the year of 76 and uh, declare a world champion. Right. And that was the, the, the concept of IPS. Yep. And so the, there was a meeting at the uh, Kui Lima, which is now the Turtle, Turtle Bay Hilton. Yeah. And uh, there was a, you know, where Fred announced the International Professional Surfing, the IPS. And there's a really interesting point here that's relevant to today is that the IPS was owned by Fred and a couple of his mates. So it was a privately owned group. Right. And uh, from our perspective in Australia, uh, clubs were owned by the members. Right. Right. Well, if you're a member of Subiaco Football Club, you own Subiaco Football Club. Like, yeah. you don't really own it, but, but the membership owns it and runs it. Yeah. yeah. It's not like Billy Jackson owns... A club. Mm. So our concept, right, in that meeting there, I just went, dude, really? I didn't say dude because I hadn't lived in America that much. <laughs> I said, mate, mate, you fucking own this thing, mate. How's that work? Yeah. You know, because it's ours. Mm. And today, WSL is owned by... A a person or a group of people, and so we've segued from ownership to when I created the ASP. It was owned by the events and the surfers, and that little piece of information was lost in the shuffle when ASP was taken over by Zosi, and then they found Ziff with the money. Right. So it's a really significant moment. Because I heard that thing and just went, no, 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 mate, this is this is not right. Mm. And so we went through from 76 and, of course, uh, the ranking system. PT was working with Randy, so he figured out a system where he'd win. Yeah, that's right, because he won that 76 world title, didn't he? Yeah, and if, if we had have dropped a couple of results, I would have won. Yeah. You know, because I had some bad results and a couple of wins. Right. <laughs> so you came second. And, of course, there are people that sort of chirp that they didn't know what was going on and all this sort of bullshit. But the fact is you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And you know, you got to put a stake in the ground saying this is how it is. Yep. And so that was the beginning of organized professional surfing with the IPS. And the IPS continued all the way till 1983. Yep. And I competed on it for quite a few years. Uh you know, up and down in, you know, I came second in, you know, to PT in 1976. Uh, one of the really interesting things that it was always really difficult to get into events. So in Hawaii, 
Bernie Baker came up with the idea of the pro-class trials. So if you wanted to get into Sunset, Halieva, and Pipeline, you could go into the pro-class trials and win a chance to actually get into those events. Right. So I was unranked and un not in those events in 1978, and I won the pro-class trials and went in and came, came second in the World Cup to Buzzy Kerbox. Right. And in 1980, I was not in the events because I didn't have rankings, but I came in the pro-class trials qualified, and, you know, my strength was Sunset and Halieva. Yeah. So the final event of the year, I won the World Cup again. Right. At Halieva. Yeah. In, in Big Sur. And uh, so I ended up 20th in the world. I was qualified for the World Tour in 1981. I competed on the World Tour. And, you know, I, I just didn't get results. I'd make quarterfinals. And, you know, how here you hear people talking today about making the final series and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Dude, if you're, in, in my mind, if you're not winning events, you're no one. And that's, that's the bottom line. So uh, 1981 was my last year. But the, the, the idea, what was so magnificent about the tour in those days and also in the early years of the ASP is the fact that uh, we, would, we would surf Sunset, Halieva, and Pipeline. But if it's too big, the alternate location was Waimea. Right, yeah. Yeah, so in 1975, uh, I came second in the Smirnoff to Mark Richards, and uh, Rabbit was third. And a week or so later, I won the Duke Hanamoku contest again at Waimea. Yeah, yep, awesome. So that Smirnoff was at Waimea, uh, 75, 74 was at Waimea, and it was enormous. You know, fully closed out Waimea. And then, then, when I in '75, so we had two two of the tour events at Waimea, and you know, so the your skill set had to be able to handle Shonan and Japan, yeah, and Waimea and Hawaii, right? Yeah, and, and so the the broad skill set of someone who was on the tour and the recognition of Hawaii as yeah. being the ultimate location, yeah, for for proving yourself as a surfer, yeah. which we know is absolutely true today, yeah, and then also for winning a world title, uh, Hawaii is, has always been that way. Yeah. And so you'll, you'll see that uh, in 1983 when I brought up the ASP, IPS when I ran the OP Pro in 1982 at Huntington Beach, it was an amazing event, just Absolutely. like a thousand times bigger than we thought. Yeah. And the concept was bring the surfers to the people. Yep. Right. Yeah, because everyone had been reading their surfer and surfing magazines. They, the, there was a fan base of people out there in California. And so when you get Sean Thompson and Rabbit Bartholomew and uh, you know all of those stars in a surf contest in California at that time, the people came. Yeah, they sure did. They came in their thousands. Thousands, tens of thousands. Yeah. And so we had, I mean, we were just woefully under-equipped for handling handling that event. 
but I mean, basically, I'd gone. Uh, that was 1982, and 1981 was my last year on the tour, and I uh, ultimately ended up coaching Sean. Yep. And uh, I coached him to sort of like a runner-up finish to Simon Anderson at the Coke contest at Narrabeen. Right. So when I'm looking at Narrabeen, I'm talking about it like I competed there and lost to Michael Peterson in the Coke contest. Right. And I coached Sean Thompson at Narrabeen. Yep. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of memories and yeah. a lot of sort of in-depth knowledge about the place. Right. And uh, so when we when we got to – when IPS, Fred had lost interest, um, Jeff Luton from Australia was running IPS, good mate of Sid Cassidy's, a good guy, but IPS was not ended up not being a service business for events. And the OP Pro kind of needed some, some assistance. Yep. And uh, one of the rules in those days was that um, if you were in a contest, you could wear the, you know, you had to wear the trunks of the company that sponsored the contest. Right. Like when we, when we, when I won the Duke, I won the Duke and Canvas by Cadence. That was your colours. Like your contest jersey was the your shorts. Right. Yeah. And you just think how you know it's such a different world back then. Yeah. So we, you know, we put on the OP Pro. Uh, OP wants everyone to wear their trunks. Like if you went to the Stubbies contest, you wore Stubbies. Right. Yeah, because no one had a sponsorship from Rip Curl or Billabong yeah. or Quicksilver. Like it was, it was such formative years there. Mm. But we go to the OP Pro. OP's expecting to give trunks to everyone, and Rabbit just goes, "No, I need. I'm going to wear my sponsors' trunks, the uh, Quicksilvers." So I'm just saying, in my mind, I'm just going, "Well, IPS rules say you have to wear the trunks." But on the other hand, if you think of it from the the surface perspective, he's got a sponsor. Mm. The we should allow the surfer to wear his sponsor's gear. Right, the sponsor's got to get what they're paying for. Right, the sponsor has to get what they're paying for. But really, the surfers need to have the option of actually using their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there's a sort of dichotomy, and you know, IPS just did not back up OP at that event, and OP was pissed. Mm. So that was the time when I went to uh, Mike Parnell, who was the marketing guy for OP, and I just said after that event, which was in September, uh, it was in Labor Day, which is like a big holiday at the end of summer, I said to Mike, hey, how about we start a new association with new rules, And but I need someone to fund it. And he goes, that's really cool because he felt burnt by IPS. Right. So he presented to the owners of OP. So they came up with a three-year deal where we had a quarter of a million bucks a year from OP to create the ASP for three years. So we had funding. And so what we had and what I learned at that time was you need a big idea. Yep which was let's make the world tour bigger and better. And you need someone with gravitas. When you think about it, I was 20th in the world in 1981. You know, I've just recently won one of the world tour events. And I just run the world's biggest surf contest. And you're a world champion. Let's not forget that. And a world champion back there in 73. Yeah. So all of those things together, like I, I had – 
the um, the gravitas to be able to present an idea. Right. And the idea was let's let's link all these contests together. Let's have standard rules. Yep. Yeah. So that if if someone surfs in Brazil, they're getting the same judging panel as if they surfed in Sydney. Mm. And so what we did was, uh, you know, I was able to sort of talk to people around the world. And Peter Baness from South Africa who ran the Gunston and the Hang Ten contest. Yep. A huge supporter of pro surfing. Yeah. And South Africa was always bedrock supporter of pro surfing. Yep. Uh, and Graham Cassidy, huge supporter of pro surfing, became allies. Right. And they. They chose to be involved with something that was new and fresh. Yeah. So I had the idea, I had the funding, and people trusted me to be able to pull it off. Right. And so in a lot of ways, this is a, I mean, that's a breakaway, right? That's a rebel move. And I'm wondering about how you managed to get surfers on board. There's some parallels here, I think. Some of my listeners won't know much about cricket, but... For those that do here in Australia, will probably know the story about Kerry Packer and Paul Hogan, the famous Crocodile Dundee, how they broke away from the establishment of cricket and created uh, World Series cricket, which is still alive and running today. And those guys were hanging around in in car parks at uh, cricket grounds all over the world with bags of money trying to catch these guys as they left training to get into their cars to try and, you know, convince them over onto their sort of rebel tour. Was it a bit like that for you, or how did you manage to get the surfers behind the ASP? Well, the remember you surfed for free. In the, yeah, you paid your entry fee in the contest, but there was no membership fee for the association. Right. And and so, I mean, arithmetic says you you, know, you should be paying a membership fee into an association. Yeah. So in the first, the first event was a straight talk tire, tire event in 1983 at uh, Wanda. And uh, in Cronulla, and uh, Graham Cassidy was signed on for the tour. I'd already already got South Africa, Australia, and I had visited Fred Hemmings, who gave me the okay to put Hawaii on the tour. Right. So the ASP tour had these things, but the deal I struck with Graham Cassidy was that the tour would run through Hawaii and finish in Australia. Right. Right. So now we've got the first year of the ASP World Tour finishing in Australia. And of course, yeah, Randy was not stoked, and but so anyhow, we kicked it off at Wanda, and you had to pay a hundred dollars membership fee. So I stood on the beach and collected a hundred bucks off every person who entered, and those Aussies hated me. (laughs) Yeah, but the bottom line is, I had to stand in the breach and just go, okay, here's the deal Mm. you want a tour. You want a pro sport, you pay your money or you don't fucking surf. Yeah. Take your pick. Yep. And so, uh, you know, Paul Sargent was a photographer, but he was also working for a newspaper. I got a lot of pretty fucked up uh, coverage. But the bottom line is you need to have someone that's going to stand up and just go, this is the way it's going to be, mate. Mm. Shut the fuck up, pay your money, get on with it. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, we pulled that off and all of a sudden it was swinging. And the next thing you know, I've got this Jacques Hillet from Lacanau Pro in France. He wants his event on the ASP Tour. Right. And I'm going, that's awesome. So it's, so it was the genesis of European surfing. Yeah. Yep. So we already, 
Yeah, Brazil had been on the tour but was off. Europe had never been on the tour. Mm. We're still just why uh, South Africa, Australia, and California because of the IP Pro. Yep. And so how do we expand this thing? And simply people, there was demand. People wanted to be involved. Yeah. And it grew from... Uh, but, you know, it grew from maybe 10 events to like 30 or 40 events within three years. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden, people were – surfers were making money competing in surf contests. Yep. Because you want to know a big deal what was happening in, before ASP? Yes. Many events ran and they would promise prize money and they wouldn't pay the prize money. Right. Right, so surfers might travel to Florida or come to California or go somewhere and they'd run the event and at the end the promoter would just say, dude, we don't, we don't have enough money so we're not paying prize money. Right, wow. And so I created a rule of we because you got to remember what the structure was. I could have pulled Bernie Ecclestone and just created ASP and it was mine, mm. but I didn't do that. I created an association on the Australian model was that this thing is actually 50% owned by the surfers, 50% owned by the events. So every year an event happened, it got a, got a vote, yep. and then there was a casting vote in the middle by the executive director. Right. And, and, but fundamentally, ownership belonged to surfing. Yeah. Not, not, to, not to anyone. Yep. And that's a really, really important concept to remember because uh, when we came up with the idea, I said, PT, didn't we make up some stationery, uh, you know, with ASP on it? And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got that. It was done by, um, oh, what's his name, Downing. Uh, uh, George? No. Not George, George's son. He was a really good surfer, but he was also mm. a graphic artist, so he built some ASP stationery. Mm. So we pulled that out. We had this stuff printed, and that's what I pitched ASP to OP with. Right. You know, on this old stationery. It was like three years old. <laughs> because these ideas had been gurgling around amongst the guys. Uh, uh, Keone Downing. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Keone, it was Keone and Kainoa. Right. And Keone was involved because we – I like to work collaboratively with people yeah. i like to get ideas and input and you know what do we what do we think yep and and so that was the genesis of asp it was these ideas that we discussed this stationery we came up with this thing and straight out of the you know the first event that we did the op pro which was ips we had little scoring cards so that there was actually live scoring but it was done manually by on paper well yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, like, well, wow, that wave was written. Let's get the five score sheets and let's let's add them up and announce the score. Right. The PA. It was fundamentally the exactly the same structural system as what the computer scoring was. Yeah. So we we did that at the AP Pro and we did the priority rules. So we stopped hassling. Right. At that at that event. So priority rule and the concept of immediate scoring. And so once we got the funding for ASP. Then I've worked with a, um, you know, a friend of mine in uh, Huntington Beach, um, George Stokes, a computer program, a total nerd, <laughs> and he wrote the scoring software, and we took the first computer system to South Africa. 
1983 with computer scoring. Wow. So judges putting scores in, announcing live scoring. So we had priority rule and live scoring. The other thing that we did, which was really important, was made international traveling judges. Right. So the judging panel uh, was people that were actually indoctrinated into thinking like we wanted them to think. Yeah. So that it didn't matter where you came from, so long as you joined the team. So wherever we went, everywhere in the world, there was a, out of a five-man panel, there was always three ASP international judges. Right. On the panel, so we controlled the decisions. And so they so were getting no, paid a wage. That that was their job. They they were paid, and ultimately, people aspired to be on the international panel. Mm. So they learnt how we were doing. Right. And you know, because you know, you go to Japan, and the judging was funky. You go to Brazil, it was funky. I'm sure they thought we went that when they came to Australia, it was funky. Yeah. It was always different. Right. And when you create standardization of something in a subjective format, yeah. you you create confidence. Yeah, yeah. And you give well, the surfers clearer direction about what's expected too. I mean, it must be so hard to, to surf in an event and not really know kind of what the rules are and how you're going to be scored. It was absolutely a shit show wherever you went. Yeah. You just had to handle it. Yeah. Um, I got down and I wrote the first ASP rule book. First time the rules had ever been written down. Yeah. Uh, Mike Martin was uh, head judge. You know, he illustrated the interference rules. And so now we had, you know, you could go to an event, there's your international judging panel, here's your computer scoring, there's your priority rule, mm. there, here's your rule book. Yep. Okay, you've got a problem, you want to protest, here's how you protest. Let's look at how that matches to the rules. Okay, now we're going to adjudicate that that decision based on the rule book consistently in South Africa, in Brazil, in Australia, in Hawaii, wherever. Yeah, yeah. And that was that kind of organisation and structure is, uh, you know, it's kind of I, I kind of like being organised. Yeah, yeah. But it was if you're a competitor, you need to have okay. You need to have that organization and structure, yeah. and you learn how to adhere to the structure, and then above that, you can become creative. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and so it was chaos in the IPS, organized in the ASP. Before you knew it, by the time I left after the OP Pro rights in 1986, I'd brought Brazil back in with Hang Loose at Joaquina, which when I see Italo and uh, Gabriel out at uh, Strickland's Bay, yeah. I know I had a hand in making that happen. You most certainly did. And, and for me, I mean, it just it completely blew up. I mean, the first two ASP World titles were won by Tommy Carroll, right? And the... The couple yep. right behind him, another young fella called Tom, Mr. Style from America, Tom Curran, of course. And so for me as a, as a grommet, I mean, I first fell in love with surfing down at Scarborough Beach in 1983. So I opened my eyes and, you know, started to ride my bike down to the newsagent and get those surfing magazines that you mentioned earlier. I just kind of dived straight into that world without realising any of that history, you know. So it's great for me to hear that now. And, you know, it was just the rock star era. I mean, the ASP just took off. 
the media was all over it. And, you know, I had no idea about, you know, the work that went into it from the likes of yourself to, to make that what it was. It just felt like that was the establishment and that's the way it had always been. And you're right, it's just yeah. survived from then until now. And I do want to talk a bit about now, because you touched a, a little bit earlier on, uh, you know, uh, surfing today and how the WSL ownership models changed a bit. And you also talked about, you know, Waimea and, and Hawaii being the proving ground. I want to get your feelings on 2021. Have we sort of got it wrong a little bit starting the year in Hawaii and finishing in uh, at Trestles? That's part A of my question. And part B is... Should we, you know, we've made a very clear distinction between big wave surfing and, you know, professional surfing other today, if you like. Should that distinction be there or should we be seeing at least one big wave event on the world tour? Well, look, first and foremost, um, when ASP got taken over by WSL, ASP was in a tough time. Yeah. Uh, it was struggling to put the events together. Uh, all the brands who'd become such great supporters of ASP events. But what? What's who comes first, the chicken or the egg? Mm. ASP happened, and the biggest brand in the world was OP, Ocean Pacific somewhere. Yep. Small small brands were Quicksilver, Billabong, and Rip Curl. Yeah. They sponsored surfers who travelled the world on the ASP tour, and with and the ASP tour was international, and it was in Japan, it was in Europe, it was in Australia, it was in America, it was in Brazil, and before you know it, those brands, Quicksilver, Billabong, and Rip Curl, are multinational sportswear companies. Huge. Built, built on the back of sponsored surfers. Mm. So they grew their businesses on the back of the ASP tour. Yeah. The credibility that got created. So you've got that. So by the time we get to, uh, you know, five years ago or so, you've, you've, you know, you've, you've seen the rise and the fall and the cyclical nature of, of surfing branding it, it contracts down to the surf world and spreads out to captures the imagination of a broader world. And we've seen it since, you know, the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and all that sort of stuff, yeah. how surfing you know, goes up and down and up and down. Right. Well, surfing was at a down period and all of those brands were struggling to sponsor those big events. Mm. And, you know, uh, Paul Speaker, uh, you know, comes along and he tells this big story and takes over the ASP because he says he's found, you know, this uh, patron in uh, Dirk Ziff. Mm. And the, uh, but we never knew who the patron was for quite a period of time. Right. And, you know, all of this stuff being hidden behind a veil doesn't sit well with the, the nature of, we, we need to go, well, 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 who the fuck's paying for the thing? Yeah. yeah we want to know. And so this empowers people like, you know, Beach Grit, you know, Derek Riley and those guys who've become the anti-WSL people. Yeah. Um, because they dare to ask questions. Right. 
Right, so now you've got Paul Speaker comes along and he's sold a bill of goods. Like, we've bought the ASP. Well, the bottom line was they took over the assets of ASP and reorganized them. They didn't buy anything. They got it for fucking nothing. Right. So you've gone from the surface and the events, owning the world tour, yeah. to... Yeah, behind in in behind closed door manipulation. Yeah, that asset is gone, mm. and it belongs to a group of private secret investors. Yeah, fronted by Paul Speaker, who we're going to make this like NFL. Yeah. Well, Paul Speaker presented himself and went out and did his thing, and changed the name to WSL. Yeah. But all he did was put lipstick on the pig. Mm. He had the same tour, yep. the same surfers, the same organizers, mm. the same events. As ASP, he didn't invent anything. Mm. So if you go back to the, the original premise of how the ASP was formed, when you have a big idea and you have the money to activate that, and you have a person with the gravitas to make it happen. When you think of those three pieces, effectively, you're short two. Yeah. Yep. You don't have the idea because you're just changing the name. Yep. You don't have someone with the gravitas to actually make it happen, mm. but you got the money. Yeah. Yep. Right? So... And so here we are, like five or six years later. So Paul Speaker failed, and Sophie Goldschmidt comes in. Now, whatever rocket science scientist thought that they could hire an English woman pro tennis player rugby executive to run the world of surfing, like whoever hired that person should be fired. Because when you see the decisions that have been consistently made by WSL, like which just happened the other day, when uh, Mayhem reposted a WSL post of uh, Carissa Moore riding his boards, it got pulled down by Instagram and he got a lawyer's letter from WSL. Like Matt, you know, Biolas, one of the, you know, the top five surfboard manufacturers in the world yeah. gets banned by the WSL for reposting a social media post when WSL is reposting all the time. Yeah. It's, it's a real fuck you to surfing. That is very strange. That's the first I've heard of that. That's astonishing. It, it's just like how can you be that tone deaf to the zeitgeist of surfing mm. and understand like the influence that Matt Paolis has had for surfers and let alone the influence with Carissa Moore? Mm. When you see that 9-5 she just scored at Rottnest? Yeah. And you, you see that this is a woman who's just an extraordinary surfer. Absolutely. Who, regardless of all of the fanfare and bullshit that is around 
the world of surfing, mm. every surfer in the world is going to look at that wave yeah. and just go, holy shit, yeah. that wave would have won the men's hits. Absolutely. And, and and let's not forget her nine-plus point wave at Pipeline, and the first time women have surfed there an event at Backdoor. That was an incredible wave. That would have been a nine yeah. in the men's, no question about it. So when the essence of the surfing culture is about the relationship between a, a high-performance surfer and their trusted shaper. Yeah. If you can't respect that, mm. if your desire to dominate and control and own and all of these things, uh, it sounds like fucking Hollywood, mate. Yeah, you're making a very good point there, mate. It's hard to think of a more respectable relationship in surfing than the relationship between surfer and shaper. It's fundamental. That's yeah, yeah. That's really bizarre news. I'm I'm shocked. Wow. Yeah. Well, it, but you don't need to be shocked because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you you just you you look at all of these pieces and you just go like endlessly. You guys make decisions that are not consistent with the attitude and the thinking within the world of surfing. Yeah. So yeah. every time you make those decisions, you fuel beach grit yeah. and you fuel the haters. Yeah. And you lose you lose your core base. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because they stop trusting you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, it's there's parallels here with AFL footy. I mean, I, I'm a Fitzroy supporter, Kanga. And if you remember the history yeah. there in nineteen ninety six this was one of the founding clubs. There was only four clubs in the VFL when it started, and Fitzroy was one of those. And here we are today where they don't exist, you know, because the AFL took over and had the, uh, a corporate vision instead of a sense of tr uh, tradition and history and respect. And, it, yeah, it, it upsets me too, mate. There's a lot missing there. Yeah, yeah well, well, it happened in the Super League of Soccer. They had yep. to pull the plug. Yeah. Because the, the club... Members just went fuck you, billionaires. Yep. We don't. We're not buying that vision. I want. I want my club because I want to go there, have a beer because yep. I feel like I own it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. The the, that's, the the thing that's fundamental to a, a sports fan actually has absolutely zero to do with money. So fully respect that it's a business and businesses have to make money. But fans are about history and tradition. That's ultimately what sport is about. And if you haven't got yeah. those fans, guess what else you don't have? Those corporate dollars. So you make yeah. a very good point there, mate. I do, I'm going to wrap it up with – I'm going to go back on the, the couple of questions that I kind of touched on earlier. I'm going to ask them point blank. Trestles for finals, good decision or mistake? Uh, it's a catastrophic mistake for two reasons. I won a single event in 1973. The Smirnoff became the world champion. Yep. So the evolution of surfing has brought us all the way back to the 70s yep. where you have a single event for the world title. Yep. Then you have a single event that's not in Hawaii. That right there was proven with the first year of the ASP. We quickly moved the end of the ASP World Tour to Hawaii to have it end in the traditional big wave spots of Haleiwa, Sunset Beach, and pipeline and why Yep. That is an absolutely essential element to get the respect of the entire surf surfing community. Yeah. Because 
when you're riding close out Sunset Beach or you're being caught inside by a left coming from Avalanche and wiping out everyone at Haleiwa, yep. or when it's second reef of pipeline or it's closing out the channel at Waimea, the only the best of the best can excel in those conditions and every other surfer in the world has got to, got to get down on their knees and just go, I praise thee. Yeah, yeah. And so for those two reasons, uh, this is a bad result. Yeah. And yeah. when you think about what's happening in the world of surfing, the world qualifying series is disappearing. Hmm. You've, 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 you're making all of these things, creating a media company built around these, you know, 30 to 40 surfers. But what about the other four or 5,000 surfers around the world that are potentially, and just look at Sibilic, yep. and you look at Liam O'Brien, mm. like clearly a good enough surfer, but could he earn his way onto that tour through is it going to be the Challenger Series or the QS mm. or what other ABC alphabet soup are you going to come up with? Mm. Like there needs to be structural change, I agree, but this is wrong. Yeah, yeah. I agree, mate. I agree. I, I've been kind of tight-lipped a little bit on the podcast. I've been trying to take that stance of let's wait and see before we, we judge, but I think, mate, you know, you're absolutely right. Hawaii's always been the proving ground. How can you stand on a podium and hold up a trophy that says I'm the best surfer in the world if you haven't proven yourself in big waves on the North Shore? I agree 100%. I hate to say it because I, I want to love professional surfing. It's, it is something I do get a kick out and I have enjoyed watching you know WA and Rotto on the, uh, on the World Tour this year for a bit of a novelty because it's right outside my window here. But um, no, I agree, mate. I think it's a bad decision. I hope it's only a 2021. I hope sanity will prevail and we'll see Hawaii become that, that testing ground again that it needs to be in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you and understand I love Dirk Ziff. Thank you very much for saving pro surfing. Yep. Um, but you've got to actually... Consider an idea based on history. Yeah. 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 What does history say? Well, the people who were around when historical circumstances occurred. Yep. How about we ask their opinion? Mm, yeah. Yep. And, and, and so all of these things, you know, um, I'm forced to make these, uh, these comments, public comments, simply because I know what the outcome will be. Yep. I mean, I live in California. In September is probably the best time of the year for trestles. Yep. They've got a decent waiting period and they're only going to do one day. A one-day surf contest. I'd surfed a one-day surf contest at Laniakea in 1973 and won the world title. Right? Yeah. It, when, when you realize that that's not the way the world title should be selected, yep. it should be over a series of events over time. Yeah. You know what the structure should be. Yeah. Why we revert back to what we know has failed? And then lastly, lowers could be flat the whole time. Yeah. So you're just you're rolling a dice on the success or failure of an idea. Yeah. In California, which is notoriously dog shit 
300 days of the year. Yeah. Versus Hawaii, which is no, notoriously like scary shit. Shit. Yeah. Which is you, the visuals that you're going to get. Absolutely. Should there be a, a WSL surf contest at lower trestles? For 100% for certain. Yep. Because in our world in California, it's a really, really high performance wave. Yep. And it's accessible. Remember the concept of the OP Pro? Mm. Bring the surface to the people. Yep. Taking that event away from the audience in California was a major misstep. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, you know, someone, you know, getting the ability to sign, you get an autograph with John John and Kelly and all of these guys. And when dad comes down, he brings his kids down. You're nurturing the next generation. Yeah. And they get this thing. And you know what they do? is that they actually go surfing with their kids just down the beach at Middles. Yeah, yeah. And so you've created this whole family bond and this family support, and the next generation of fans for WSL occurs at that event. Yeah. It should be part of it, for sure, but it should not be the championship. Yeah, I agree, mate. And and so, but you guys were you were acknowledged by the WSL in the in the form of the the founders um, event at the at Kelly's Wave Pool. Was that just a novelty thing, or did the WSL genuinely have an interest in your opinions and you know the type of stuff we're talking about today? Look, the uh, Dave Prodan, who's works at WSL, I just did a podcast with him. Yeah, uh, a good guy, and he's you know managed to survive through multiple um, iterations of leadership. And, and his concept is uh, of the brand and what it should be. And Dave's concept for the founders was to reconnect the WSL with the group of people who helped make it happen. Right. And at that event in um, Lamar at the Wave Pool, we did this. And um, Seth Goldschmidt just got the job. And she dropped in one time uh, for lunch just to say hi. I mean, oh, yeah, I'm Sophie. I'm the CEO of WSL. Hi, how are you doing? Oh, I got a buzz. Right. And instead of just going, I'm incredibly honored to meet you people. I've researched who you are. Yeah. I've researched the kind of impact you had on the sport that now I'm entrusted with managing. Yeah. Yep. Do you have any ideas? And there would have been sort of political talk, but I would have just said flat out, this is what I think. Yeah. And, you know, because if you're afraid of hearing, um, that when someone gets uh, sanctified in the church, uh, there's a devil's advocate that goes out and finds all the reasons why you shouldn't do this. Yep. Now, it doesn't mean that it changes the decision, but what it does, it gives a balance of arguments yep. so that then you're able to go, oh, wow, you know, I hadn't thought of that, I hadn't thought of this, and I just, well, these are good ideas. They go into the hopper, mm. they get stirred up, and you get a better decision. Yeah, yep. They've never used us as a tool and as an asset Mm. And all of us are, are incredibly passionate for our entire lives about the success of pro surfing. Yeah. And would we contribute our time? Well, 
yeah, we, we, we went there with the intention of just going, wow, we'd love to help. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, Sophie never answered my emails. Yeah, disappointing. Yeah, you know, I found the fucking thing you're running. Yeah. Who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah, yeah. Oh, now we've got Eric Logan. Yep. And we've got, we got the same superior attitude, like I know what's best. Mm-hmm. But there's a disconnect between what they're doing and what the world of surfing wants. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is, 100%. And your discussions with Dave Prodan, do they, is there, you know, does he have that sort of influence over the WSL or not? No, he's, he's a survivor. Yeah. And, and uh, when, when you get things that are highly corporatized and there's big money involved and you have high-powered executives, yeah. uh, you, they want to drive the ship. Yeah, and you toe the line to a degree. I mean, I think we all do it in our, in our jobs day to day. You know, we toe the line because we don't want to lose our job. We've got bills to pay. Yeah. That's, that's 100% what it is. Yeah. And, you know, is, and so because... I don't get a paycheck yeah. from WSL. Yeah. And I care deeply about where things are going. Yeah. I've said these things to you today. Yeah. Not not because the concept of I've soured on the concept of pro surfing and no. a world tour. That I love that. Yeah. But because I would like to have some influence on in what the direction is. Yeah. Well, as a surf fan, mate, I sincerely hope that you do in the next year or two uh, find a way to have that influence because, as I've said already, your, your ideas are the right ones. They are. And, and I, can, I feel strongly that I'm speaking for, you know, I talk to surf fans all day long and I think, you know, you're going to have the support of the fans. That's, they're getting a few things wrong, the things that we've talked about today. And if they tidy those couple of things up, move away from the corporate model of, you know, it's only about money and I know best and have a bit more respect for, for history and tradition and make some of those, you know, fix some of those errors like the trestles one being the big one, send it back to Hawaii where it belongs. We're going to love it more and their business model is going to be more successful. Great, mate. Well, thanks for that. Look, a final question. I'm going to change tact and go slightly more lighthearted. I know that Hollywood's been having a crack at surfing for a very long time. You mentioned the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. You, you almost can't talk about that era without mentioning, you know, Gidget and the, the Beach Blanket movies and, you know, uh, what was his name? Frankie Avalon, is that right? It was, you yeah. know, Hollywood tried and failed. It, you know, they, they probably helped popularise surfing in the sense of like this craze thing that it was considered to be in the 60s. But for real surfers, they didn't really get it right until about 1977 with Big Wednesday, and I know that you were involved in that film. What do you remember about your involvement with that film? Take us back, because surfers my age and older loved that movie and still do. What Tell us about that experience in your life. Uh, PT got tapped uh, because he was so public and he had that look, and he was going to double for Jan Michael Vincent. Right. And when they saw him, they just went, oh, my God, you're the spitting image of Billy Cat." <laughs> so then they got other guys to double for Jan Michael, and Jan Michael was a, a decent surfer. Billy Cat could surf. And uh, they had Lance Carson. Uh, they were shooting the um, scenes in the movie down in El Salvador, and Lance Carson was there, and it just didn't work out. And uh, so PT said, look, you know, 
the perfect guy to, to take over from Lance to double Gary Busey, the masochist, is, is Kanga. So I got a call, you know, at our house in Pimble, and, you know, the phone rings, and I oh, yeah, this is, uh, uh, you know, so-and-so from Warner Brothers. I'm just going, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> and, and they go, well, you know, we'd like you to come, you know, to do the doubling for um, uh, for Gary. Uh, Gary Busey. And I just went, well, let me think about it. Call me back tomorrow. So the phone rings again tomorrow, and I'm just going, uh, I'm in. So I, 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 fl I flew to uh, L.A. and went to the Warner Brothers studios. And what you don't understand is the magic factories. These, whether it's Universal or Warner Brothers, and, you know, you walk by, you know, these little, these little cabins and, you know, this is Steven Spielberg and this, I mean, it's just sort of like mind-boggling. You know, if yeah. we grew up as far away from Hollywood as you can get, we've seen these movies, mate. Yeah. And uh, so you go there and you're involved. And and uh, John Milius, who wrote it, uh, just a magnificent guy. And, you know, because he, he was sort of like grew up at Malibu and was a fly on the wall. That's why he got it right. right. He idolized these guys at Malibu. Mm. And so an incredible screenwriter, like he, he co-wrote Apocalypse Now mm. and, you know, and wrote and directed a bunch of movies. But he just loved you. Candy, you just got to be like the masochist. <laughs> and so, like, it's just, and I've been in, in meetings where I'm sitting on a couch with, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg and John Milius talking about movies coming up. Wow. You just... Like, and you're just going, this is amazing. So they shipped me off down to El Salvador. I started writing these boards and, and doing this stuff. And, uh, you know, we had one of the world's best stuntmen down there in El Salvador. Um, in the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, he was this stunt coordinator who was climbing under the trucks and doing all this crazy shit. Yeah. And he's looking at all these skinny surfer guys and just going, these guys are fucking pussies. <laughs> so one Sunday at Zinzal, uh, our day off, uh, we took him out on about a three-foot day and he almost drowned. <laughs> and he just went, oh, <laughs> oh, I get it. Right. I, this is this is a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> so we never, got, we never got that big day in El Salvador. And so then they rehired us to come back for Sunset Beach. And if you watch the final sequence of surfing at Sunset Beach and Big Wednesday, yep. like that stands the test of time. Sure does. Big wave surfing, bigger boards, big waves, carving turns. I mean, that that sort of concept is timeless. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, I hadn't watched the movie for like 20 years and I watched that and I just went, whoa, yep. that's pretty good. It is, indeed. That's, so I, I'm really, really proud of the surfing um, that I got to do. But more than ever, the actual um, interaction in a movie like that, when you see how these things are made and, you, the, you know, the actual from, – from just a little booklet of paper turning this into this sort of magnificent vision on screen, mm. it, you know, the, the creativity – and just the passion and the multiple layers of 
yeah, Basil Poladuris is writing the the music, and all those people that go on to win Oscars are involved in all the other, you know, the the camera guys, and I, it's just the the extraordinary quality of the work that's being done. Yeah, and you know, you're part of it. Yeah, it it's uh, it, it's. I just wish everyone could have one chance at doing something like that. Yeah. Because such an an amazing and incredible experience. Fantastic, mate. What a great story. That was awesome. All right, Kanga, mate. I've had an absolute pleasure talking to you, mate, over the last couple of weekends. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing all that wonderful history. You know, th- those days, you know, to a surfer like me who was a grommet in the 80s, we look back at, uh, at guys like you and your era as just the absolute golden age. And I know that surfing wouldn't be anywhere near what it is today without the likes of you. So I thank you for your contribution to the sport, mate. And it's been my absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Totally stuck, Brad. We'll, we'll, we'll get a wave together one day. Let's go for a paddle at Salt Creek when we can uh, finally get on a plane and I can get over there, mate. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we'll flip the I'll come back to WA and ride Hazawui with you. Well, let's do that. Let's go out there on that giant Norwest swell you were talking about, mate. That sounds fun yeah. to me. Yeah, totally, Good on you, Kanga. Thanks, mate. Yeah. Cheers, buddy. Just a quick reminder to our listeners, we do have a GoFundMe page to help cover some of the costs of putting this podcast together. All donations are appreciated no matter how small. Go to GoFundMe.com and search for The West Peak Sessions. Thanks and see you next time.